0: We have been, uh, Easter's just a couple weeks away here, working through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, as told by the Gospel of uh, Matthew. We uh, have seen Jesus having a big last dinner with his disciples where he predicted that uh, one of his own disciples that he had hung out for a number of years was going to betray him. And we saw that was Judas. Judas left and was uh, paid 30 pieces of silver to go and and uh, betray Jesus, and so Judas took this band of, of raiding men with clubs and weapons, and he leads them into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus and his disciples were. And he betrays Jesus with a, with a kiss, that famous kiss, and then the arresting party grabs Jesus, and he's hauled off to a group of religious leaders that we saw last week, that kind of put on this sort of uh, kind of unfair trial, and. There they uh, said, Jesus is worthy of death. And we've seen all throughout the gospel that these religious leaders uh, wanted to kill Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a threat to them. Jesus uh, was calling out their hypocrisy and because they were threatened and because of their pride, they said, we need to, we need to kill this Jesus. But at that little trial we saw last week, uh, Jesus said something to them that just really set them off. In fact, the high priest whom in the law said he was not to rip his clothes. He actually rips his clothes because he is so ticked at Jesus. And if you remember that, what that was, it was this. Jesus said to them, uh, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's God, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that was a very clear reference that Jesus was saying, I am the guy from Daniel chapter 7. And they would have known this Fairly well, because what Jesus says here directly relates to what it says in Daniel chapter 7. And that says this. And Daniel has this vision. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before uh, me was one like a son of man. That's the title Jesus used. Coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus just said. That is Jesus saying, I'm this guy. Which guy? He approached the ancients of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus saying, I'm that guy. Whom all the nations are going to worship, who has all this power, whom all the authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus said, I'm that guy. And then the high priest rips his clothes and says, This guy deserves death, blasphemy. But the problem is, the Jews were not allowed to kill anybody. They didn't have the power to carry out uh, capital punishment. Only the Romans could do that because uh, Israel at that time, Judea at that time was, was an occupied country. The Romans had taken control and only the Romans had authority to actually es- execute somebody. So the Jews now take Jesus to the Roman authorities trying to convince them to put Jesus to death. And so that's where we pick up the story. So early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, that's all the, these religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus, made their plans how to have Jesus executed. In other words, what can we say to the Roman governor to convince him to put Jesus together? So they're trying to formulate a plan. What if we say this? Well, maybe that won't work. What if we say, it? and they figure it out. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And, and Pontius Pilate was the governor at that time. His role was to keep the peace, but also maintain the power and the uh, occupation of Rome. And uh, he really ticked off the Jews a number of times. Like when he first came in, he put up uh, throughout Jerusalem all these images of Caesar and minted all these coins with pagan symbols on them, and it caused a lot of ruckus. And and so sometimes his power, his his job of keeping the peace wasn't going so well. But nonetheless, he was the governor. They bring him to him because only Pontius Pilate has the authority to kill someone or, or to not kill someone. And it seems what they bring to him is this. And it says this in the book of John. That Pilate tried to set Jesus free. Because we'll see in every gospel it seems that Pilate is trying to... to, Pilate is smart. He sees through the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. Uh, He wants to set Jesus free because he sees that he's not really guilty of the things he is saying. But it says the Jewish leaders kept shouting. If you let this man, you are no friend to Caesar. Saying to Pilate... Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And we will see the first question that Pilate asks Jesus is, Are you the king of the Jews? And so it seems what the Jews brought to Pilate was, This guy Jesus is saying that he's a king, and therefore he's opposing Caesar, and your role is to maintain Roman's power. He's a threat to Roman power, so you need to execute him. So that was their their plan. But then a side note about Judas here. It says, When Judas who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Remember, the chief priests paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to, to go uh, point them to where Jesus was hiding. And he, And Judas says, I have sinned. He said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. In other words, he tries to return the money and And they're like, you know, I don't really care. Uh, That's your problem. They they have no use for Judas anymore. But it's interesting. We see that Judas here has remorse. Not just a little bit, but he is seized with remorse. So much that this guy who betrayed Jesus says, I have sinned, and he admits, I have betrayed innocent blood. This is not what Jesus deserves. And, And it may be that Judas was trying to Uh, Get jesus to really start his messiahship because Again, most of the disciples thought jesus and and the messiah was going to be someone who'd come in and kick out the romans Didn't seem like jesus was doing that Maybe judas thought but if I you know get things started create some trouble here Then maybe jesus will finally take up the sword But he sees that's not happening He sees that jesus is on his way to his death and all of a sudden he's realized this was a big mistake I mean he sees with remorse. he, He feels guilty about what he did and, uh, and this happens to us, too, when we realize we do something wrong, because we, we mess up a lot of times. Sometimes we hurt people, and, and we're seized with conviction, or we're seized with guilt, and sometimes people try to separate guilt and conviction. We're going to put them t- together for today, but, but guilt is actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing that God instills in you when you make a mistake to push you to a place where you seek forgiveness with God and with others, and if you allow guilt to take its course in your life, it should always move you to a place of feeling guilty, to a place where you seek reconciliation, where you seek forgiveness from God and the people you hurt, and only then will you find freedom. Uh, Chip Dodd uh, puts it this way: guilt always points to the need for forgiveness and change. And so, guilt is something that God will lay on your heart because He's saying you need change, you need to seek forgiveness, you need you need reconciliation. And so guilt always points to the need for forgiveness and change. The need to be reconciled with our own hearts, with others, and with God. Therefore, guilt is relational. It is the voice of the heart speaking to the pain we have caused ourselves, others, and God. We desire to be in sincere, authentic relationships with others and God. Guilt and the healthy direction it can lead us, uh, guilt and the healthy directions it can take, lead us to fulfill that desire. In other words... Guilt is always supposed to push you somewhere. And that is to make it right with those you've hurt. With God and with others. And it is only when you confess your sin to God and confess your sin to those you've hurt, that's where freedom is found. We see freedom in confessing to God. 1 John says, if we confess our sins... That God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That means we're actually forgiven. That our mistake, the guilt of our mistake, God takes it and he washes it away. And we step from a place of being weighed down with guilt to a place of freedom. And if you're weighed down by guilt in your life today, there is freedom. It's found in first confessing your sin to God. And in that, there is this beautiful forgiveness. But under Jesus' way of life, it's not just enough to confess your sin to God. You need to make it right with the person you have offended. Matthew 5 says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, like you're coming for worship, you're here to praise Jesus or whatever it might be, hand in your tithe. And it says, and there remember... That your brother or sister or someone out there has something against you. In other words, you hurt somebody. Uh, you made a mistake, you sinned against somebody. He says this: Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It's like it's like if you've hurt someone, God can wait. You need to go and make it right with that person. This is where guilt has to push us to make it right with God, to genuinely confess our sin with. God because we've hurt him by hurting people and then we go to that person that we have hurt and we confess our sin to them we say you know I'm really sorry I really messed up there and and you just try to make it right now their response is not your problem they might not accept your apology they might not believe you I mean that's their issue you got to do whatever you can to try to make it right but when you've made it right with God and try to make it right with other people that's when you can live in the freedom that God brings you uh, Judas is filled with this guilt, with remorse. He confesses he has sins, but, but we don't see him going to God. doesn't say that anywhere in the text. We don't see him trying to make it right with Jesus. He, just, he, he tries to kind of wash away his guilt, and he goes and, and he returns the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest. And maybe if I just give this money back, then my guilt will be washed away. It doesn't work. He's still trapped in his guilt. Because freedom from guilt is only found and confessing to God, and trying to make it right with those you've hurt. That's where freedom comes. Any other plan, any other strategy won't work. And in fact, he is so in remorse, it goes on and says at the end, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then it says, sadly, then he went away and he hanged himself. He he commits suicide because this guilt, this remorse is so heavy that he is in such utter despair that he kills himself. I mean, he lets his guilt weigh him down. He doesn't take guilt to the path of freedom by confessing it to God and with others. He lets his guilt push him to a place where he ends up in such despair, he commits suicide. And this is what guilt can do. And I like this picture because sometimes guilt can be like this. It can be like this weight in our life that we're just trying to get rid of. Because we, we've, we've hurt God and we, we've hurt other people because we, we make mistakes. And a lot of times we try the Judith path. I'm not going to confess it to God. I'm not going to confess it to the person I hurt because you know. I, I mean, you know, I have to expose my heart and humble myself, and I got too much pride to do that. I mean, I, I'm a super Christian. I got it all together. I'll do it another way. I'll just return the, the money, or I'll distract myself, I'm watching TV and. I on Facebook all the time, let's just try to live a real busy life and then maybe I won't have to think about my guilt or maybe I'll just try to drink it away or do drugs or just try to numb the pain because I got this weight and, and you do everything to find freedom and you just can't and there's this weight hanging on your back because the only way to be free from guilt is to confess your sin to God and try to make with, right with those you've hurt. That's when true freedom actually comes in. I mean, I've known people who have made mistakes and they're just, they're not willing to confess it. They might try to confess it with God, but they're not willing to make it right with people because they know that's, that, that's too much of exposing my heart and I don't know what's gonna happen. And they try to fight their guilt. They try to get rid of this guilt by doing a whole bunch of good things. And they get really involved in ministries and stuff and all kinds of things trying to get rid of this guilt. And, but it's still there. Because only through God, and through trying to make it right where this freedom, this freedom is found. And if you find yourself in a place where you're dragging guilt around, freedom can be yours. You don't have to hold on to that guilt anymore. You can actually be free. Jesus said, I've come to to make you free and and to set you free. But it means exposing your heart to God and confessing your sin and allowing His forgiveness to saturate your life and then going to the people you've hurt and said, I've messed up, I'm really sorry. And you try to make it right. Now again, Their response is up to them. Your response is to go and and to try to make it right. And and you should be free. And you should live in that freedom that God gives you. Now, what happens? Because sometimes people go, well, I've done that. I've confessed to God and and I've confessed to these people, but I, I still am weighed down by guilt. Well, it may be that you're allowing Satan's lies to be stronger than God's truth. Because Satan's purpose, again, is to kill, steal, and destroy. And he loves to see Christians like this. He loves to see believers weighed down by guilt because they just become ineffective and miserable and grumpy and and, and all these things. He loves that. And so he'll whisper in your ear, God doesn't really forgive you. What you do is too horrible. You're an awful person. What a shameful wreck you are. And and sometimes we believe those lives. And I mean, the Bible says, take every thought captive and make obedient to Christ. The Bible says, if you confess your sin to God, He is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, you are forgiven. And you need to live into that truth. And whenever you hear those lies that you're a horrible, you're you know, messed up, you're just a shameful person, God, you just say, no, nope. God's word says I'm forgiven and I believe God because he's God, Satan, you're not God, God is God. And you walk in that forgiveness and you walk in the freedom that God gives you. Don't let guilt, I mean, do this to you. There is freedom, it's founding Jesus, trying to make it right with each person, as person, and then you walk in the truth of that forgiveness, and you live the life Jesus wants you to live. Uh, sadly, Judas we don't see taking the right path. He goes, and he commits suicide. Now, uh, sometimes the question is: I mean, sadly, some people in the church have taught that suicide is like the unforgivable sin. That if you, uh, it's a mortal sin. You know, if you commit suicide, you automatically go to hell forever. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian or not, if you commit suicide, you're, you're banned to hell forever. I mean, that's just a horrible teaching. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, I mean, yes, suicide is a sin. It's, it's not something that glorifies God. Because the Bible says, uh, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And God wants you to live for loving him and loving people, not for committing suicide. I mean, it it is a sin, but it's not a sin that Jesus can't cover. The cross is big enough to cover any sin, including the sin of suicide. Uh, I mean, Romans 8 tells us very clearly, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life and even suicide will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, it is so sad when someone is, is in such despair and in such a miserable state that they end up doing that. But there have been Christians who love Jesus, who have just been in a horrible spot, who have done that. And I mean, God's going to welcome them into the kingdom. Uh, it's not an unforgivable sin. It's not something we should we get to. I mean, we need to be reaching out to God and others before we end up to that, that state I mean, we need to be living in the freedom that he wants us to live in. But it's not the unforgivable sin. Uh, but what happened to Judas? Because it kind of seems from this text that he, he almost repents. You know, I've sinned. I've, I've depraved innocent blood. But we don't see him ever going to God. Uh, just because you confessed your sin doesn't mean you're actually confessing it to God and to others. May, you just might be just wanting to you know, have a pity party or whatever it might be. Uh, but Jesus said this in the garden. He says, while I was with them, I protected them. He's talking about the disciples. I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And it seems that Judas uh, was not wanting the kingdom, was not wanting God to be a part of his life, he, that, that he, he chose destruction rather than life. And so it, it seems that he uh, is not going to be a part of the kingdom from what Jesus says in this text so then back to the, uh, the story with Jesus and the trial uh, the chief priest picked up the coins and said or is it back to Judas sorry it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money and to me that's the most stupid hypocritical statement in the whole Bible I mean Judas brings back the money that they gave him and he says well this is blood money we can't put it in the temple they, they're the ones who gave it to Judas I mean, this is how twisted these minds have gotten. And sadly, sometimes like religious people or people can get so twisted in their sin that they're so blind to their own sin that they still think they're in the right one, really that they're just totally wrong like these guys. I mean, they're the ones who made it blood money, but they're like, oh, you know, we can't really touch this stuff. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And, and so there's probably some field out there that they used to get potter's clay from. And they buy this place as a, as a burial place, and, and, and probably when um, like there was something like the Passover festival, when there's lots of visitors in Jerusalem. I mean, if one of them died, they wouldn't have like a family plot, a burial place there. So foreigners would be buried in this, this new graveyard that they bought with this blood money. And it says that is why it has been called uh, that is why it ha- has been called the field of blood to this day. And so obviously the word got out it was bought with blood money, so that was the name of this field. The field of blood. Then what was spoken by, the, uh, by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And he points to an Old Testament text. It's actually a couple texts put together. Uh, Zechariah and Jeremiah. Uh, they took the 30 pieces of silver. The price set on him by the people of Israel. And they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So again, this is what the, the, the argument the Jews brought to Pontius Pilate. He's the king. So he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so. In other words, in in a roundabout way, you're correct. I am the king of the Jews. Because Jesus wasn't just the king of the Jews. I mean, he's he's the king of the world, the king of the nations. He's one that everyone will worship at one day. That he is the sovereign ruler who is good, powerful, and loving. And when when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. So The elders, the the religious leaders are throwing threats at Jesus and Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. Not to a single charge. To the great amazement of the governor. And this would be amazing because, I mean, he deals with crooks and criminals all the time who would be vehemently spouting off their defense. And Jesus, he's silent. He's leaving his fate in the hands of the Father. He, he knows what's coming. He, he's headed to the cross. He knows that's his purpose. So then it says, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that he had handed Jesus over to him. And so again, he's trying to set Jesus free. Pilate knows his self-interest this is not really something that deserves death. So it seems he's trying to figure out a way to set Jesus free without looking dumb, without threatening his position or his power or his rule or trying to make peace. And so often what sometimes, uh, and you see this in various other historical texts besides the Bible, that sometimes leaders to kind of... Uh, appease the people would release a prisoner and it seemed that that somehow maybe they had a tradition at Passover that that they would release one of the prisoners back to the people to sign and say hey Rome's not so bad after all right so Pilate goes well maybe we can release Jesus and so he brings the two options Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Messiah and they're both named Jesus by the way as you saw it's like uh, Jesus back then was actually a common name uh, we have common names today, and Jesus was a very common name, and so Jesus wasn't the only guy with that name, and it just so happens that both of these guys had the name, and maybe that wasn't by accident, because we're going to see that this is, this is a very interesting story about Barabbas, that it is found in every gospel. It almost seems kind of out of place, because it's like this is about Jesus and his crucifixion, not about other people, and, and there are other stories in the Bible about Jesus', Jesus crucifixion, like Simon of Cyrene who carries the cross for Jesus, who couldn't carry it? He's not in every gospel. But for some reason, Barabbas is. And I think there is a real reason for this, and we'll see that in a moment. So Barabbas was not necessarily a good guy. John 18 says Barabbas had taken uh, taken part in an uprising. Luke 29 says Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. So he's a murderer. He's not like some gentle little thief who stole a loaf of bread. He's a murderer. He's in there for insurrection and uprising, and, and, and either he was someone who was going to—he decided he's going to take on Rome with his own little gang of men, and uh, maybe kill some Roman soldiers or whatever it might be. Uh, some people think he was maybe kind of like a, an outlaw who was stealing from the rich and maybe just trying to feed his little gang or whatever it might be. But he's captured, and probably his other men were captured. When Jesus was crucified, there were two other bandits, same word is used, that were crucified next to Jesus. Those very well could have been the same people in the party uh, of Barabbas when they were caught. that, That cross that was meant for Jesus was probably meant for Barabbas. And so he brings these two up and says, which one do you want for me? We got Barabbas here, who's a murderer, who started an insurrection, And we got Jesus. Which one do you want me to release to you? And Pilate's probably hoping, well, I hope it's Jesus because he doesn't really, doesn't deserve death. And then another little interesting side note pops in here. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And so Pilate's wife has this dream about Jesus, and, and, and it, just, it was a warning that Pilate, her husband, shouldn't have anything to do with his death. And it seems his dream was from God. And throughout the book of Matthew, dreams play a very important role in the book of Matthew, uh, that God very clearly at times can speak to us through dreams. Not, not every dream is from God. I mean, sometimes it's just the pizza you ate last night or whatever, or the horror movie you watch or whatever it might be. I mean, but, but sometimes there are clear dreams for God. Don't ignore those. Uh, in, in the book of Matthew, sometimes they play a very clear warnings from God. And here there's a warning given to this woman. And a Christ, Christian tradition says, and can't really verify the story, of course, but there are lots of these little traditions that we don't know if are true or not, is that this Pilate's wife became a Christian. And, uh, and she's actually a saint in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Ethiopian uh, Orthodox Church. He's a saint. And interestingly also is that in the Egyptian Coptic churches, Pilate is a saint. And they have a tradition that Pilate actually became a Christian and was actually martyred for his faith. Now I know that can be verified and, and it's probably not true, but uh, interesting little uh, traditions out there about some of these, these people in, in the Bible. We just have no records of what actually happened to them. Maybe, maybe they are true. I don't know. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And so maybe the crowd at first was like, yeah, Jesus, maybe Jesus. I mean, heard some of his teachings. They're, they're, they're kind of decent. Maybe we, but the religious leaders are persuading the crowd. And they would have had a lot of authority. I mean... They were the head honchos of the Jewish people. I mean, they carried a lot of weight. And so they're persuading the crowd to ask for Jesus. I mean, maybe it was like Jesus and some little Barabbas at first. And then it was like, no, I went Barabbas. So which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall we do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Paul had asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But again, they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now, one of the questions that comes out of this is like, how in the world, it just seems like a few days ago, if you're reading your Bible, they were all shouting, Hosanna, laying down palm branches, you know, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And now like a few days later, they're like, crucify him. Like, how in the world do these people change? The most likely answer is that we're talking about two different crowds here. Uh, When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, he was coming from Galilee. Jesus actually spent by far the most time in Galilee. He rarely went to Jerusalem. He wasn't really known that well in Jerusalem. The Galileans knew him, his healing, his miracles. They they thought he was the Messiah. And because thousands would be coming into Jerusalem for the Passover from Galilee, he was probably coming in with the, the Galilean crowd that knew Jesus, and they come in celebrating with hosannas. This is probably a local crowd controlled by the religious leaders. The Passover festival is going on as well. The locals would be at the temple. That's where the, the festival is. And, or the, 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 the Galileans who were shouting, uh, he's the Messiah. They would have been at the temple. These are probably some of the locals and some of the people brought there by the religious leaders. And, and they don't really know Jesus that well. And they shout, crucify him. So when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting... Again, his role was to keep the peace. If he lost the peace, his job would be done. So he's in a tough spot. There's an uproar that was starting. So he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. He, he said, it is your responsibility. In other words, I, I, he's in, I don't see any fault in him. This is your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. We will take the responsibility for the death of Christ. Now another sad note through church history is that this text has been used in some of the most dreadful ways to uh, become anti-Semitic, to, to, to what, I mean, there have been people in the name of Jesus who have used this text to wipe out the Jewish people in the most horrendous ways, because those are the people who killed Jesus which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in the life because Jesus said, you do good to your enemies and you, you pray for those who bless you. Jesus was a Jew and so were his other disciples who loved Jesus. All the Galileans loved Jesus who said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, this was just a certain group of people. I mean, Jesus died for everyone. Even these people who are crying, you know, his blood be on us. I mean, Jesus even was loving those people. There is no excuse to put down another race or nationality, because they're all loved in Jesus. They're all made in the image of God. And it's sickening that people have used this uh, for that means in, in church history. And then the last verse for today. So then he releases Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So Barabbas, this, this murderer, this guy who lived this horrible life, who's you know, inser- not, not a decent guy, He's totally free. He just gets to walk off the stage and he's like, hey, you know, buddies, I'm totally free. And Jesus, who's the miracle worker, the healer, this, this amazing person, he goes to the cross. And this is just an act in some way of God's love even upon those who are his enemies. Now, while we were still sinners, God has shone his love on us. And, and, and in this moment, God is like allowing the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that his love is even falling on Barabbas in this moment, but Jesus goes to the cross and Barabbas is set free. And and really, one of the reasons I think this is in every gospel, not unlike other stories in the crucifixion, is because we're Barabbas. This is a picture of us. I mean, the reality is, uh, Romans 6 says the wage of sin is death. Like Barabbas, who was going to the cross, he deserved death for murder, we too, the Bible say, we deserve death. That is... I mean, the the new heavens and the new earth are perfect in every way. Beautifully perfect. But the problem is I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect. And if I go to the new heavens and the new earth, I'm going to mess it up, and it won't be perfect, it won't be heaven. I mean, only perfect people can go there because it's a perfect place. But I'm a sinner, and therefore I don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. And the Bible says if you're not part of the kingdom, you're a part of death. That because of our sin, we deserve death, just like Barabbas But it says this in the Bible, that God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who had no sin, who lived this perfect life, who loved people perfectly, who healed people, that he became our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of love. This is the the doctrine of, of substitution, the great switcheroo, where Jesus looks at us and our sin. He's lived this perfect life and he says, you want to trade places? I will give you my freedom. I will give you my life. I'll give you my perfection. You give me your sin. I I want your sin. I will take your sin. And and this is what happens. And when we... Give our sin to Jesus. Also, we are free. Romans eight says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just as Barabbas walks out the stage, he's like, "I'm totally free. All the charges are dropped." Man, when you go to God and confess your sin to Him and live for Him, you're forgiven, and there's no more condemnation. You're like Barabbas, who was supposed to die, but now is free. Colossians says once you were alienated from God and were enemies, just like Barabbas was the enemy to the Rome. We are enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is how amazing the forgiveness of Jesus really is. That as you stand before the God of this universe, that you are holy in his sight, that you are without blemish, you are free from accusation. This is why it is good when you're weighed down by guilt, you confess it to God, because he cleanses you makes you free from the weight of guilt. I mean, if you feel the weight of sin on your life today, you know where to go. You go to Jesus. Say, I'll trade. Because Jesus said, give me your sin. I'll take your sin. I will give you my freedom. And with that, I want to just end with about a five-minute video clip that kind of drives this point home. It's a bit of a sermon jam, and uh, here it is.
1: We see the story of Jesus going to the cross and everything seems to kind of be hand-in-hand, and then there's this one character that seems to interrupt the narrative. His name's Barabbas. Uh, We don't even know much about him except that he's a murderer, a leader of an insurrection, a rebel, and why he's even mentioned, sometimes I'm not so sure. It's like, what? Let's, this is about Jesus going to the cross. And... So in this moment, Pilate thinks, I hold the destinies of these two men in my hand. I know the Jews have a tradition that on a holy day, I will release one of the prisoners on death row. Pilate stands on this audacious stage who now presents Jesus, son of the living God, versus Barabbas, the thug and rebel. He says, all right, who do you want? This is blasphemy, this, is, this has gone too far. There's no comparison. This is a rightful prisoner, a man who should be on death row. He's a rebel against Rome. He leads a, a rebellion, he murders people. He's a bad man, he's a thug and he's a crook. He deserves the chains. And he deserves the crucifixion. Jesus? What has he done but heal, restore, deliver, set free, open blind eyes, open deaf ears, heal the lame and the leper? What what has Jesus done? Who do you want? We, we, We want Barabbas. Yeah. Give us Barabbas. I had met, I love him, and I wanted him to go free. But didn't you know that he probably would have never acknowledged the free gift? Yeah, but I love Barabbas. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son for Barabbas. Even the one he knew would walk away from Jesus and his free gift and never come back. He loves them. And the nerve, the call, and the audacity of believers to think, I got saved by grace, but now that I'm in this deep, dark place of bondage, I've got to work hard to get myself out. What? That's the opposite of the gospel. Are you bound? Are you held under the power of this temptation, this sin? Sins. you feel like it's controlling you? What are you going to do? I'm going to shake myself free. Stop it. No, you won't. You're no match for the powers of hell and the urges it of sin. sin. You will not overcome it and you will never overcome it. You'll just be another statistic. There's no answer within yourself. Your own marriage, your own goodness, your own discipline, your own devotion will not save your marriage and will not save your kids. There's only one. And he's the one that took your place. He's the one that stood silently on the platform with Pilate and said, Yes, let him have Barabbas. Take me. How many times have I stood on that platform with Pilate and Jesus, and I'm the Barabbas, and they start to take my chains off, and I say, no, no, I deserve this. I deserve the guilt, I deserve the shame, I deserve the consequence, I deserve it. Jesus seems to look at me, say, no son, let me have it. Let me have your sin, let me have your pain. No, God, I did it to myself, I deserve it. My marriage won't make it, this is what I deserve. I deserve divorce, I deserve poverty, I deserve sickness, I deserve it all, no! God, I I'm so ashamed, give me your shame. But God, what if I do it again? I'll still be here. Oh God, I don't want to hurt you. I love you, I I don't want to do this anymore. Give me your sins, son. This is all we got. It's all I got, it's all you got. We can play games, we can play church games. so expansive, so welcoming, so inclusive. Let me have your sin, son. Okay. When I give him my sin, let's stand in this empty space of forgiveness and acceptance while Jesus walks off to the cross that I deserve. I see him. I see him walking to the post A free man, all the attention is turned now, and I feel the love of God saying, Go, son, live your life. I'll pay the price. Where did we get off thinking that we were gonna set ourselves free? It's still Jesus, it'll always be Jesus, it'll never stop being the power of Jesus. If his blood is sufficient for your salvation, his blood is sufficient to sustain you through every challenge and every sin and every temptation. Jesus is enough.
0: Let's stand If uh, any of you need prayer for uh, any reason, you need a healing, you need uh, a touch of God, you need to celebrate something with Him, um, Abby's going to be up here, and uh, maybe Marie is going to be up here as well. And they'd be uh, more than happy to pray with you uh, for anything. You can just come up. If there's someone already praying for them, you can just wait here, and, uh, and then uh, they'll be happy to pray with you. Let's go close in prayer. Thank you, uh, Jesus for your willingness to go to the cross when you didn't have to. When at any moment you could have uh, called thousands of angels to come and rescue you. Uh, But God, you, you didn't. And Jesus, you you hung there. You you died the death that we deserve uh, because of your love for us. And we uh, thank you for that freedom you have given us. We we thank you for taking every single one of our mistakes, our sins, our mess up, our, our guilt, our shame, that you, You've taken it all and that you've set us free. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that, uh, that you never leave us nor forsake you uh, us. We thank you that you walk with us through the, the good times and the hard times, that God, you are, are there for us and that you meet every need according to your glorious riches. And God, we pray for your blessing on each person in this room. God, teach us to walk in that forgiveness, to walk in the freedom that you have given us, that, God, we wouldn't be people who walk around in guilt and shame and and just feeling down because you've set us free. You've given us new life. You've filled us with your spirit. And so, God, with you, go with us in strength, helping us to love you and love those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.